Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey everyone, today we're sharing one of Rick Rubin's most intimate conversations ever on Broken Record with Red Hot Chili Peppers guitarist John Frusciante. Rick last spoke to John back in April when the Peppers were getting ready to release Unlimited Love, their first record with Frusciante in 16 years. If you haven't heard Rick's series of individual interviews with the band, I highly recommend you go back and listen. Those conversations are a testament to the band's deep, soulful connection and their unique creative partnership that has proven time and again to soar as a result of Frusciante's songwriting and gorgeous guitar work. And Frusciante rejoining the band again has reinvigorated the group. On April 1st, Unlimited Love debuted at number one in the U.S. and 15 other countries. In July, the band announced the release of a second Rick Rubin-produced album that's out today, Return of the Dream Canteen. On today's episode, we'll hear John Fushante talk about the making of Blood Sugar Sex Magic and how his contributions on slower, more melodic songs like Under the Bridge and Breaking the Girl helped expand the Chili Peppers' funk-punk sound. John also talks candidly about the dark, drug-addicted years that followed the intense success of Blood Sugar. And he explains how he was able to finally get sober and rejoin the Chili Peppers to record their classic commercial comeback album, Californication. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and John Frusciante. And just a heads up, this is part one of a two-part conversation, so keep your eye on our feed for part two soon. What's happening, man? Hey, Rick. How you feeling? Good, how are you? Good. What's life on the road like these days? It's been really good. Yeah, really great. Like 
playing's been really fun and you know it's it's a different kind of lifestyle just like everything is aimed towards being able to get up on stage and do that and it took me like about a month and a half pretty much the whole european tour every time i walked out into one of those stadiums to play i was shocked about the amount of people you know like yeah. like i thought we had played stadiums before in europe and now i realize we hadn't <laughs> like, wow maybe we'd played some festival we hadn't played anything that looked like that wow every night that amount of energy coming from the people and putting out what you feel like you have to put out it's just every day when i wake up i can't imagine going up on stage and in front of that many people and doing that but you just gradually build yourself towards it throughout the day and i don't know it's just Real different state of mind, but I enjoy I enjoy practicing all the time. That's the main thing I do is just practice. And yeah. is the energy of the audience, like can you use the energy coming from the audience to channel that into what you're doing? Yeah, it seems like that happens. That's what I'm preparing myself to take place because what I play when I'm practicing is not nearly as intense ever, no matter what I warm up with. It's not nearly as intense as what I do when, once I'm up there. It's just like... I feel like it's something about the people and the hap the general feeling of happiness that brings that out of me. And you can practice all you want, but there's really no practice for doing that other than doing it, you know, because there's no way to simulate it. And so yeah. I feel like I'm just warming up. I'm looking forward to next year and stuff. Yeah. You know. So I think the last time we talked, we were starting to talk about playing on albums and we got through Mother's Milk Mm -hmm. And then we got distracted and never kept going. Exactly. So Mother's Milk, it was not a great experience for you. And was that, I can't remember now, was that your first time in a proper recording studio recording or no? Well, the first time was when we did the song Taste the Pain. And that went really well. Like, did it in one take and everything, you know, went really smoothly. Yeah, Michael Beinhorn was just hyped when we were making the record, and he, he he was taking on a lot of pressure. I think he had put a lot of pressure on himself that it's got to be the greatest album ever and all this stuff. And and he definitely uh, imposed that on me, and me especially, because uh, I think he felt like I was young and, you know, he could really guide me and stuff like this. And You know, so the, the album felt forced. I've... You know, since doing interviews recently, I, I, I've kind of reflected on that period, especially once we got on tour, because once we started touring with Chad after the record had come out and stuff, it, it really, we really had a thing. Like, I think even a couple of years later, I didn't appreciate what that was. Yeah. I was such a fan of the band before I was in the band that I thought of the magic of that band really highly with Hillel and Jack. Mm -hmm. But... I recently heard just, I heard, I listened to one song of us around that time of the Mother's Milk Tour doing the what was usually our first song back then, the first song they ever performed on stage uh, out in L.A. And man, I was like, wow, we were really good. I was like, I was, because I always think I was bad at that time. And I, I listened back to it and I was like, wow, we really had something that that, that, that other band didn't have. Like we had this very intense energy like there was something kind of mellow in comparison about about the previous band like we really did play every note like it was going to be our last like there was this passion and intensity and and i don't know considering that it was basically funk music and that we were playing it that hard i i just don't feel like there's ever really been anything like it and i 
even though I had an ego about it at the time, I don't think I really appreciated like yeah. how special it was. And, and I think when I really felt like I found myself, I kind of mellowed out a bit, you know, and stopped pushing myself on the music so much. And But there really was something we had then in 88, 89 that was, or I guess in particular 89, that was really like powerful. I saw you guys at the Greek theater at that time and it was mind-blowing. Right. Yeah, that was the very last show of that tour. So Yeah. Yeah. And and I think part of it also has to do with Chad because if you think of what drummers in funk bands sound like, like if you think about James Brown's drummers, right. they're super groovy, but they play almost like jazz, like like very subdued, groovy, but not loud. Yeah. And Chad's rocking like yeah. crazy, which is not your typical funk drumming. Right, but he's got a he's got a good funk the feel, groove. Absolutely, you know? it's, it's it's incredible. It's a great combination. Yeah, it's just like there's this heaviness to it, but it's still got this funk thing. But it's also got this extra speed to it, and, yeah. and it's just just all four of us. It, it was just like it was a real explosion when we came out on stage, and there was like I don't know. Somehow it, it took me like 33 years to, to realize to realize what that thing was we had. Because there's other things about that period of time. Like I can be critical about myself in the sense that I, I wasn't improvising as much as I did after that. Like my solos weren't as, like ever since then, you know, when I play a solo, it's usually pretty unique to that night. It's rare that I do the same thing in the same place twice, you know, and... At that time, I, I feel like I I wasn't ready to to take that risk. But that was part of the intensity. It was so important to me that it was maximum intensity all the time. When I did start improvising, there was this feeling of like indifference to the outcome. Yeah, it feels much it feels much riskier to do yeah, that. Yeah, it is. And and like and and in nineteen eighty nine I energetically like the energy was the main thing to me and like i couldn't afford to let that energy slip at all the way i felt you know so i'm i'm glad i went i'm glad i moved past that to being able to relax and allow mistakes to happen and allow allow myself to do a solo that's not great and knowing that like taking the same risk the next time some a great one might come you know and, yeah it also makes sense that because you were such a big fan of the original lineup of the band and knowing you're just a different person, it's, you know, it's, you always feel like, how do I fit in? You know, how do I step up to this thing that I love so much? It didn't, it doesn't even really have to do with how good of a guitar player you are. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah. those guys do this thing that I love and now I get to do it, but it, it's weird, you know, it's just weird. It's it's a weird thing. No, it's really strange. And and Anthony and Flea, all my memories of seeing them prior to my being in the band, including what I had videotapes I managed to get a hold of of early live shows of theirs and stuff that I used to watch when I was, you know, 15, 16, 17. And they and they still have it to this day. They have this thing that happens on stage, and in a way they're kind of like that in life too. They somehow simultaneously appear to be trying very hard and at the same time they seem like they're kicking back and they really don't care about the impression they make on anybody and they're just there to be themselves like there's this balance in the the persona of who they are on stage that somehow has has this combination of a careless 
kind of relaxed, I don't give a shit thing. And I'm trying really hard at the same time to be the best entertainer I can be up here. It's a it's funny all, combination. Like, it's con yeah, it seems contradictory. And yeah. so coming into it, I think my first thought was that I was going to be as crazy as them on stage, you know, yeah. like, and I think possibly the reason I didn't have that same balance is because I think I cared a lot for the reason that you're saying, you know, yeah, I couldn't have that relaxed indifference. That's this very cool sense that I used to get from them on stage. For me, if I was going to go up there and go crazy, that's all it was, was a guy going crazy. There was no cool kickback aspect to it, mm -hmm. you know? It just wasn't me being trying to be wild and crazy. Like my, yeah. it's not my personality, and it wasn't the best way for me to serve the chem, the overall chemistry of the group. You know, so having a relaxed mental attitude to the performance part, to the playing part, to everything was what turned out to be best for everybody. I think, mm -hmm. but like I say, there was something about the fact that I was just so all, you know, all out. In that in that first couple of years, that you know, never got that back again. Again, you know what I mean? Like no, that but that it's cool, and it's cool that that's a period of time, and that's like you wouldn't change your diary entries either. You know, it's like yeah. that's a moment in time, and that was then, and yeah. now you get to do this, and it's great, and it's you know, it's different versions of good. It's not like they're in competition with each other. Yeah, I remember I went to see Radiohead two nights in a row at Radio City Music Hall, and the first night it looked like Tom York didn't want to be there. And he was just standing at the mic and playing and singing and stone-faced, not moving, perfectly still. And it just felt like he was just waiting for the show to end. Yeah. And then the next night, which was the last show of the tour, he was the most animated I've ever seen him. Like the, It was the opposite person, yeah. two nights in a row. Yeah. And he was running all over and happy. It was it was fascinating to see. I've had that same thing a few times on this tour. Like I remember specifically DC to Boston was the same thing as as what you just described. Like there's certain nights where for some reason I can't put any physical energy into the show, including just the normal sort of crouch down, kind of lean, leaning back kind kind of uh, stance that that's pretty normal for Flea and I to play in. And Anthony stands the same way too. It's just like, I can't even do that. I can just stand there perfectly straight up and with my legs straight and stand by Chad and just walk up to the mic when it's time to sing or press an effect and walk back to Chad after that. And just like, I can't look at the audience. I can't feel anything. Probably the, the best that ever comes out of my playing on a night like that is is a kind of intensity that comes out of anger that I just focus into the playing and I can't really enjoy it, but that's that's probably, if I listen back, I would imagine that would be the, the redeeming part of the show is just some sort of focus that can come from being in a bad mood like that that I can put into my lead playing in a certain way, but. If that happens, do you always know it's like, oh, I had this argument earlier with someone and that's it? Or is it just like a feeling you wake up that way and it's not related to anything specific that you could point a finger at? Yeah. If I analyze it, I could have a theory, but there's really like... No way to know. There's really no way to know. I, I sense it when I'm walking towards the stage and when I'm on stage, I realize it in that moment that I'm first on stage and I realize, 
okay, I'm in one of those moods and I'm not going to be able to get out of it, you know? Yeah. And the same thing happens to Fleeb or, you know, but he has a different way of handling it. Like he, he might go extra physically crazy to work his way through it. For me, I don't, I don't try to do that. I just, uh, yeah, just stand there and get through it. And I'm sure musically the show's great. Like it's it's great either way. Maybe I've got definitely when I've had nights like that, Anthony will give me back some report like so and so said that it, somebody who's seen us a lot of times, so and so said it was the best show he's ever seen of us. So yeah. you know it's so I'm I'm learning to just let it be that way when it's a nice night like that and don't beat myself up about it while I'm on stage Absolutely. or anything. And in my Radiohead example. I can't say one show was better than the other. It was right, just I was so ask. interesting to see how different it could be. Yeah. Yeah, that the, so yeah, the night following the night that I'm thinking of in Boston like like it was the, the freest, most loosest I could imagine feeling on stage like it was particularly like one of the best shows of the tour. So some sometimes those maybe those nights are just to remind myself to really be able to feel it completely because if you you know if you felt good every night you might never feel a particular high because there isn't the low to balance take it, it for granted also yeah so there's something about that and it's like with meditation you know when you sit to meditate at the end of the meditation there isn't a sense of sometimes we'll say to ourselves oh that was a good one or that wasn't a good one and neither of those are true it's like yeah it's the if you sat down to do it you did it, and that's all that matters. And then sometimes the experience of it is euphoric, and other times it feels like you don't go anywhere. And that's what it's supposed to be that day to get to the next one. It's just the path on the road, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really hard concept for people to understand. And for you to try to make yourself always remember is that like that there's not a good and bad meditation, you know? It's, it's a hard thing to understand because when you, your head is full of thoughts and – you just feel like this is not going well. <laughs> like, not this is a, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you really never know. And I know it from history of other bands too. I know like certain nights when somebody was, you know, supposedly like not in a good mood that night and they played really good. It was just different than how they normally played, you know? So I don't know. I tr I'm trying not to be too judgmental about it, but it's not as fun. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. So the band was really rocking after mother's milk live. And now it's time to make the next album, and that's when we started working together. And tell me, from your perspective, what was the experience like of making Blood Sugar Sex Magic? Well, pretty much right around that time that we played at the Greek, uh, I guess we had a, a we took a couple of months off, and during that couple of months, I really was and and around that time, I remember I I ran into you at Cantor's when we weren't we didn't know who was going to produce the record. Mm. And a lot of things were lining up for me as a musician and as a person right around that time. And I just had some, I had some epiphanies in terms of taking the direction of my playing uh, and my songwriting in a different in a different direction. We were so close by that point as a as a band and as friends. I didn't feel anymore like I had to prove myself or to be a to be what I my idea of a chili pepper was or anything. I I was confident that in my place in the band and I felt like I I wanted to try just being myself. Even though I've been gradually being more and more myself as a person and as a musician as that tour went on, but 
around that time, I was having all these realizations, just listening to music that was that was my favorite music at the time and and that was different from what the band was always listening to together because uh, we were always we were always listening to like Curtis Mayfield, the meters, sign the family stone uh ZZ top the the Jesus Christ superstar soundtrack like different different little things that we would listen to together that and even at home, that was a lot of what I'd been listening to that like fishbone you know like and so I just started. Now the tour was over and everything, and I was living in this house, uh, living in the in the Hollywood Hills for the first time, and and just having really strong feelings, listening to things like the Velvet Underground and television and Peter Gabriel era Genesis, and I was realizing that like that a lot of power can come from from not hitting the strings super hard all the time, you know, from from not filling up all the spaces with notes, from leaving big spaces. You know, listening to that guitarist from Bow Wow Wow and listening to how how spacious his playing was and how well it supported the bass. I've been a fan of them forever, but just hadn't specifically wanted to play like that. And and so I was I was really starting to realize like how much music was starting to really produce these intense feelings inside me that that period only really lasted for a few years where I, I really, I had a kind of a synesthesia mm-hmm. where I could, oftentimes it was seeing, but it was something in between seeing and hearing in my brain that if I put on a record, the feeling was produced. If I put the needle back, the same exact feeling was produced again. And it was like watching a movie or something. So certain records were bringing up those feelings really intensely or that ph- bringing up that phenomena. And so those were the things I focused on. Captain Beefheart was a real big one for me at the time. That was producing, I think, more of those types of sensations than anything else was. So started writing things uh, because I knew it, Flea and Anthony's taste so well and I knew the the breadth of it and I knew their open-mindedness, like... I was still trying to make stuff that I thought they would like, as I still do today. Of course. But I was coming from an angle that they weren't going to expect, you know. And so, like, that Breaking the Girl song was one of the first things that I wrote before we ever started rehearsing. And Funky Monk's song was one that that I sort of collaborated with Anthony. He He was playing the guitar part, but it was... It wasn't really the guitar part. It was just one finger, and he was hitting all the strings, and he was going bum 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 bum. And so I took that basic rhythm and made a thing out of it. And yeah, power of equality, I think, was the basic riff for that. Was something I came up with early, and it was just like I was really starting to understand how to get power out of simplicity, and. wasn't trying to compete with Flea as far as being busy and stuff like that. It was one of those things where I I finally had it through my head, like, Flea's allowed to be busy. Somehow, like, he can be busy and not sound like he's showing off. If I do it, it sounds like I'm eating into everybody else's space, you know? I was yeah. appreciating stuff like Led Zeppelin where, you notice Jimmy Page, his playing, he's he gives so much space to the drums. He's often not playing. He'll often hold a note and leave it to allow the snare drum to be the maximum size that it can be and so yeah I was putting all those things together in my head and having that having that synesthesia thing and and so when we started rehearsing just everything was falling into place like magic and yeah I had that that talk with you at Cantor's 
and I became really psyched about the idea of you producing us, and we all talked about it, and that's what everybody wanted to do. And the real exciting thing that we all noticed right off the bat was that you were the opposite of what Michael Beinhorn had been. You 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 weren't putting any pressure on us. You your skill of listening was apparent immediately. You were you were there to listen and you had no thought to impose yourself on the music or the direction at all. Like you spoke when there was something you had to say and you were silent the rest of the time. And it was really inspiring to us because that, in a way that not pushing yourself on things, that's exactly what I had come to right around that time when I ran into you in Canners was like, wow, like I don't need to force myself on the music. I can, I can let music happen without proposing to like attack it you know and me me playing that way made flea sound better and that inspired him and he started backing off and not playing quite as busy himself and we all just got really into listening to each other and supporting each other and so it was neat it was like that time i guess 1990 we we really started to realize what we had as a band and what the chemistry was that was completely separate, you know, like where in 1989, maybe it was just a more energetic, you know, more powerful version of the same thing. Like this felt like something that was unique to us. And uh, not to say that Jack and Hillel didn't have a huge influence still on the basic parameters of what we were doing, but we had fallen into a thing where we were realizing who we were as a, as a group and, you being there just helped to solidify it and support it. And every time you had an idea, it felt like something that had to be said. And that's what I was trying to do with my playing was like, if you don't have anything to say, just play one note. And if you hear that a second note needs to be added, then play a second note, you know? And it seemed to me that that's, that's how your contributions went. Everything you did made a huge difference to the overall thing and a lot of it was about creating space you know a lot of a lot of your ideas had to do with with uh, like we were all being more conscious of of the space that we were creating between each other's instruments and each other's notes and you emphasized that that same thing like telling me not to play for a whole verse or telling you know chad to lay out for this part or flea to lay out for this part or for everybody to do a complete silent pause right here, you know, like all those kind of ideas were mind-blowing for us at the time. There were things we never would have thought of, you know. And and your whole drum machine, what I perceived at the time, your experience with drum machines, because I don't know, how, had you worked with a lot of drummers at that point? You had worked no, with? No, mostly drum machines. Right, yeah. So it, it I just mostly programmed like, everything. Yeah, so... I, it was really neat, like you were when you were helping Chad with a kick drum pattern or whatever, and like it really seemed like it was this drum machine mentality going into a real drummer, and it was it was really inspiring, and it felt really fresh and and new, you know, and um, all that stuff was really inspiring in that period of time of writing that record. I think of as being like the happiest time of being in the band, you know, in that first period. That's great. I can remember being at the alley one time, exactly the story you told. I can't remember what song it was, but I remember saying, and I can't remember who I suggested it to, is like, okay, not everybody has to play from the beginning of the song. 
What's it like if Flea lays out until the chorus or John lays out till the chorus? Let's try. What's it like if we lay out till the second verse? What does it do? Let's hear it. Yeah. And just like thinking about it. And I didn't have a idea of what would work or not. It was just a way of thinking of how can we create more space yeah. and how can we do things that allow the, the material to develop without having to keep adding more things later. You right. know, like like if you take something away in the beginning, then when the normal third instrument comes in, yeah, it feels like an event, and we haven't had to add anything. We did it by taking something away, and exactly. I remember, I remember having that conversation. And it felt like it was a big deal at the time because it worked. Whatever thing we were trying it on, it worked. And it was like, oh, this is a new tool in the bag of tricks of things that can work. You know, really, and and again, I I think. I'm I'm assuming that your experience producing hip hop it was an influence on it because of For sure. the, the constant muting and unmuting that takes place when you're making that kind of music. It was absolutely. It, it was basically like you were muting the guitar for the first verse and saving it for the second verse. You know, it's yeah. A, yeah, like we we were all conscious that that was where you were coming from, and it was so neat to hear those ideas being applied to a rock band. You know, like. And, it, and it, yeah, it just made us think in a way that just wouldn't never have occurred to us. We write the verse, that's what we play in the verse. You of know, course. we think of ourselves as a unit. We don't think yeah. of ourselves as like separate. So it was, it was really neat to hear how, how space could, uh, yeah, you know, move things along. And I, and I wound up needing to do less overdubs on that album as a result Absolutely. of exactly what you're saying. Like I've often looked back and go like, how did I get away with doing so few overdubs and still the songs feel like they develop from beginning to end? And I, yeah, I think it's the arrangements. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to take a quick break and then we'll be back with more of Rick Rubin's conversation with John Fushante. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. 
It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the customer experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with Rick Rubin and John Frusciante. I remember we we were I, again. I don't remember which songs were when, but we had gotten to the point where it seemed like we were ready to make an album, and then there was some record label stuff going on where yeah. we weren't allowed to go into the studio, and ended up writing for probably close to another year. So there was already an album's worth of material that had things been normal, we probably would have recorded. Yeah, And then instead, we used that time to just write a bunch more songs. And again, I don't remember which ones came earlier, which ones came late, but I know a bunch of good ones came late too. You know, I yeah. think there were good ones on both sides. Yeah, we we decided that there was no way we were going to be on EMI anymore because they were taking too much control away from the band, like editing the record without consulting us. The mix was done without consulting us. We didn't. We never approved any mixes. Putting things out without asking us, whatever it is, 12 inches or whatever, just like, I guess we we hadn't noticed because the label just hadn't cared about the band in the first few albums, so nobody had noticed that we didn't have artistic final say. Mm -hmm. And so we really wanted to be with a label that trusted us and was going to allow us to be ourselves and allow us to have artistic final say. And um, and it turned out there were several who were willing to give us that. And so it was hard for somebody to talk EMI out of letting into letting us go, but uh, Mo Austin made a deal with them and made a deal with us, and that was the label that we felt comfortable with. And we really liked him, you know. 
himself. Even when we had decided at one point not to go with Warner Brothers, he made a point of calling each person in the band and, and saying some really nice things. And that was what did it. We were just like, okay, th- th- this is a really warm, sweet guy here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And he always was. The whole, my, my entire, you know, I got to work with him for, I don't know, 20 something years and never a bad moment. Never yeah. a bad moment. Yeah. Yeah, no, he was great. And so, so yeah, so we we took a couple of months off. I, at one point, I remember from from the rehearsing writing process, Flea did My Own Private Idaho. Yeah. But I think even during that time, maybe like Anthony might have, and I might have written I Could Have Lied at that time, which came from a very real experience, a girl he really liked, didn't want to be with him, and we drove around all day talking about it, drove to the bank, and it was a rainy day, and we were just having a conversation about it. And I'd been recording stuff on my four-track and with a sur- sort of finger-picking style on the acoustic guitar, but oftentimes putting wild, crazy guitar solos on top of them. So we'd been having this conversation all day. I, I guess I thought it would be cool to do something like this four-track stuff I'm doing, which is the stuff that later came out on your label. That's the music, the four-track music I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, we should write a song about this thing that Anthony's going through, but in the style of this stuff I've been recording on my four-track. And we did it that night. We recorded, I think we came up with a basic idea for the for the music, and then and Anthony wrote some stuff, and then I, I seem to remember him going to his house and writing some lyrics and then driving back and and recorded the vocal. And we weren't even the demo was so good we were considering even if the if the recording of the band didn't come out good we would use that demo on the record so yeah i'm pretty yeah so i'm pretty sure that was around that was in that break and and then yeah whenever when when everything cleared and we were we were allowed to go in the studio i guess we probably rehearsed for another month or two or something and then and then moved into the mansion which was another thing like to live in this house that was like again, just a warm, cozy feeling as opposed to a, a sterile, you know, professional feeling. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't have ever known that that was a possibility, you know. To us, you had to go in a studio to record a, a song, and you were just like, "No, we could make one." And and I, yeah, I don't know why I thought that either because I'd never done it before. I, <laughs> like, I, I don't really know why it was a strange. I think the thought was. They had made these this group of albums. They, I didn't get the feeling that there was ever a great recording experience for the Chili Peppers, and they were all similar in that they all went into a corporate studio and recorded. What can we do to make this one the first one that's not like that? Right. And I would drive over Laurel Canyon all the time, and I loved that house. <laughs> and then I just tracked down the owner and asked if there was any way that we could rent it, and, and it worked out. We looked at other houses before that, and it wouldn't it wouldn't have been as good. That was a really special place. Yeah, it really was. Yeah, and we were so excited by stuff, just like hearing all that natural room sound on the snare and stuff. It's like, it's it's when I hear it today, it sounds really overblown, but it it was exciting, you know. It really like, was. Yeah, like and and it felt it was perfect for that record and how we had arranged the tunes because how even sparse they were. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It filled up the space whenever the guitar wasn't playing or the bass wasn't playing. Yeah. The drums, it almost sounded like you didn't need anything but drums to fill up the space. Everything mm-hmm. else sounded like extra. So, yeah, it was 
it was really magic. And I remember when we did the uh, the overdubs where everybody played percussion instruments. I remember when we recorded up at midnight behind the house outside. You yeah. remember? Hot Dogs yeah. in the Red Hot. Yeah. We did good stuff. It was fun. And I remember Anthony was singing upstairs in one of the bedrooms. Yeah. Yeah. Flea was saying that that moment of recording the Robert Johnson song in the behind the house in the outside was, yeah. uh, it's like his favorite recording experience ever. <laughs> Yeah, it was some car drove on down Laurel Canyon. You could hear it was filled with girls, and they screamed like right before we started recording it. It was like, so cool. It just felt like that was right as we had pressed record, and we it was just like, oh yeah, that's the magic sound that's supposed to go right there, (laughs) you know. When you brought in the songs that didn't sound like previous Chili Pepper songs, what was the reaction from the band at first when you came to rehearsal with, let's say, Breaking the Girl music? Total openness, total excitement. Like, wow, right. that to me, it felt so easy to write something like that. It felt yeah. like I could have been doing that all along. I didn't know it, that it was going to be okay, you know? Yeah, because yeah, up until that point, what the Chili Peppers were was a very specific thing. It was hard funk with rap vocals, always. Yeah. Yeah. And on this album, the, that mold got broken to just be good music, whatever the good music was. Yeah. And I hadn't realized how much those limitations that we were working in as far as the the musical style, I think I thought of that as just as intentional. I didn't think of it as that they just weren't able to write something like Breaking the Girl or something. I thought specifically they didn't want to do that. And the more I got to know them, like on, on the Mother's Milk tour, Anthony and I, we had a really nice drive in Germany at one time, just like we'd never listened to David Bowie together and we listened to Hunky Dory. We had, we had a cassette of it that a nice woman from EMI gave to us. And yeah, just seeing him feel that music so intensely. And so a lo- along the way throughout the Mother's Milk tour, I'm starting to put it together into my head that like, they would really like it if I wrote stuff like this. And in a lot of ways, it was the most natural thing that I could do. And I just, but it was also that not just, not just that there might've been an inability to write stuff like that before, but like, like I really loved the band within those limitations. Like I really, like I, that, that funk punk, sometimes heavy metal, but really good version of heavy metal thing that they had, like, as a fan, I thought it was such a brilliant combination of things that I didn't want to mess with it myself for purely artistic reasons. You know, I didn't, and also you never know something till you've tried it. And Absolutely. I didn't know how good we would sound playing something like Under the Bridge or I Could Have Lied. Absolutely. Like like we were saying, like even with I Could Have Lied, we had doubt as to whether it would even sound good with yeah. Chad and Flea playing on yeah. it. You know? I can remember when we were putting songs on the album, deciding that, what's the song that ended up on the Conehead soundtrack? Soul to Squeeze. Yeah, it's like, well, that couldn't be on the album because it was like too mellow and we already had a mellow song. Like, you know, do you remember that? Yeah, and you really did your best to, to convince us to put it on there. You were like, <laughs> I think it's one of the song. best songs. You know? such a and, good song. And when we were writing this last batch of material that, that we wrote for these couple albums, uh, I listened to the whole album of, I listened to each of the whole albums at some point during the making of it just to see where we were at and what we yeah. might be missing. And and when I listened to Blood Sugar particularly, I w- as, you know, as great as it is and everything, I was just like, we were insane for not putting Soul to Squeeze on that record. Like, yeah. I remember clearly Fleas and Mice 
thinking of stuff. Of course. I remember us both particularly being like, yeah, no, yeah, too much. <laughs> I we've, as yeah. it is, we've got three songs like this, and yeah. that's that's already way more than enough or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> it's just such a good song, though. It's such a good song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you never know. Like, you really never know. And it's like, if the Ramones would have made an album like Hunky Dory, I don't know if we would have liked it. Do you know right. what I'm saying? It's like, yeah, you don't sometimes know. when the formula is good, or ACDC, you know, yeah. we there are bands that you want to sound like the way they sound. So in some ways, it was it was risky. Now, in retrospect, it worked out, but it was risky. The yeah. other thing that it did was there were already a handful of those albums. So it did, it wasn't like this was the band's second album of of their career. Yeah. They had already mined those fields for some time. Yeah. And it seemed like good timing to expand. And we didn't expand like crazy. It's still if you liked the old band, I don't think you would have not liked the new band. It wasn't it wasn't like 180 degrees in the opposite direction it just was widening the the scope yeah there definitely were people who didn't like us like who turned on us at that point for, for sure, sure when when blood sugar came out like for sure yeah there was definitely people that liked the the fast punk punk thing and and uh felt that we were selling out or whatever you know yeah i remember one interviewer came to the blood sugar house and he said so when are you guys playing vegas and I said, and, and I said, I said, oh, we're we're playing in Vegas in August or whatever. Like I thought he actually meant, yeah, yeah. You're, when you're playing Went in Las Vegas, tour, yeah, yeah. And and then and then I go, oh, okay, <laughs> I see what what <laughs> That's you meant. So funny, yeah. Like like, and I'm sure I said something really rude to him, but but yeah, like we got a little of that. I even remember like some punk kids like protesting at one of our shows and flea walking wow. out and talking to them and stuff yeah. and like. But uh, in the long run, it definitely worked out, you know. It, like something similar happened in By the Way time as well. Like, mm -hmm. like we went so far in this other direction that wasn't mm -hmm. what people expected. And in the big picture, I think we gained more fans than we lost. But but there were people who felt like like the thing that they liked about the band, we weren't doing that anymore, you know. Yeah. But I think you know. I think artistically, it's good to take those, you know, to take those risks and absolutely. And and I think for us, it worked out career-wise in the long run because uh, I think people definitely think of us more as this band that makes these melodic, you know, pop tunes than they think of us as a funk punk band anymore. You know, yeah, yeah. And we're still able to compete with bands who do go for a complete heavy onslaught type sound mm -hmm. we we still have a very intense power like we never lost that you know which is i think why maybe even though sometimes we might have thrown some people off and initially they might not have liked the new direction or whatever like i think a lot of the time those people it, it grew on them you know mm -hmm. I've, I've never talked to you about this obviously i talked to anthony about it because i was with him at the beginning when it happened but um for Under the Bridge, I remember finding the lyrics in his book. Was, I've told the story before, but I remember finding the lyrics, and I remember him saying, that's not a Chili Pepper song, because it was still in those days. That couldn't be a Chili Pepper song. And I said, well, try sing it to the band, see what happens. 
And he was very resistant, very resistant. And then he ended up playing it for you or singing it to you. Mm. And then you came up with the music. And I remember he was still terrified for you and him to present it to the rest of the band because right. it seemed so far outside of anything that had come before it. But I wanted to ask you about it. What was your experience when he first, because I wasn't there when he when he sang it to you. What was that like? My memory of it's a little different. I remember you and Anthony coming to rehearsal and you really urging him to do it and him making a bunch of disclaimers and yeah. you just really encouraging him to to sing it to us. And he sang it to us and uh, Flea and I, Flea drove me home often in those days and mm-hmm. and Flea and I driving home and it made us really sad. Under the bridge, hearing it just made us feel like Boy, Anthony's really bummed out. Like, like it's heavy. heavy yeah, words. like heavy words. Yeah, we just felt really like bad for him, and it was just this like sad kind of experience. And and going back to my house and just thinking, boy, that song is a real bummer. You know, like not meaning in a, that it's bad, meaning no, like no, no. That emotionally. Yes. Yeah, like I thought of it as a song about that he doesn't have any friends. That's mm. that was how I described it in my head. But with your encouragement and with feeling, having a feeling that that there was something there, Anthony and I made a plan for for me to go to his house, and I I wasn't super looking forward to the thing. Like I I thought of it as a depressing, yeah, and as a friend not really knowing how to like how to be there for that part of him, you know, like like. Uh, I, I guess I felt maybe in some ways like he didn't feel like I was there for him as a friend or something. Mm. But we got together to do it, and I had I had some vague ideas in my head. I thought, there's these Jimi Hendrix songs. There's a couple of them on Axis Bold is Love, uh, the song Bold is Love. Mm-hmm. And it's it's got this kind of chord progression that's very similar chord progression to the chord progression of... Uh, of under the bridge where it starts on a major chord but it goes to a minor chord in the course of the chord progression so it's basically happy but it's also got this slight sadness that it moves right through and i think i so even though i didn't know exactly what we were going to come up with like driving there i remember i specifically thought do something like bold as love like cuz we'd also been we'd been performing a cover of Castles Made of Sand, which is off that same Jimi Hendrix album, and it worked live. Like, our audience liked it, you know? That's my favorite Jimi Hendrix song. Right. I love that song. (laughs) So, yeah, so we'd been doing that all through the Mother's Milk Tour, and everybody loved it, so so I knew we could sound good playing something like that. And so I thought, I'll just write something like that, and we figured out how to have the chords and the lyrics and the melody and all work together with that. And there was a Joe Jackson song that I was particularly fond of called In Every Dream Home and Nightmare, where when it gets to the chorus, there's nothing on the one. Mm. There's the verse happens, and then there's a little drum break. And it, so the, the verse ends, and then the drums go. So it's this interesting kind of groove just where it, where it, where there's nothing on the one and there's a little drum break right before the chorus. 
So when Anthony and I came up with it, that that was I what I envisioned in my head was we could do a chorus like that Joe Jackson song. So what I came up with to have a similar kind of drum break after the verse is over, this little breath, and then and then in our case it went one two three, bum bum bum. So like the chord was starting at a different t- time. It's sooner in the bar line, but it was the same basic idea. I played I played Ryan, our engineer, the that song saying, this is where I got the idea for Under the Bridge Chorus and the song. The chorus went by him and he was like, I don't hear it. Of course. <laughs> yeah, but but conceptually it was that it was that idea of start later than the one rather than yeah. on the one for the chorus. That's a really interesting point in general, how we can be inspired by a piece of music or a technique in a piece of music and then make something inspired by it and it's nothing like it. Yeah. It's nothing like it. It's just some underlying rhythm or organization or principle that gets you to the next place, but it's not the song at all. It's yeah. just a technique. Yeah. Yeah, but we did we did a lot of that back then. Flea and I were were really on a roll with that. What we perceived as ripping we called it ripping something off. Yeah. But there isn't one example of that that I would just think that I would say comes anywhere near plagiarism, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it was, no, it's really inspiration. And it's like, Oh, we could do something like that. And the, the context is so different that it, it's has nothing to do with the original. Yeah. And a lot of the time it might be in the guitar part or the bass part, but then that gets covered up and interacted with by the drums and, and the guitar or whatever. And, you wind up with a completely different texture and a completely different sound and a completely different musical statement where a lot of musicians I've known have been paranoid about uh, stealing from anybody else. And then for some reason, those same musicians uh, actually have bass lines or guitar parts that are exactly something yeah, else. Direct, direct, direct rip-offs. Rip <laughs> yes. And they didn't, and they, they didn't know they were doing it, yeah. you know? So somehow I feel like by being conscious of it, we were controlling it, you know, and it would be a theoretical idea that we were taking or, mm-hmm. or an idea that has something to do with the relationship of the instruments or it, mm-hmm. and it's, it's not actually taking music from somebody else. Yeah. It's like architecture. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll be right back with more from Rick Rubin and John Fushante. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer, yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text SNAG to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History, my podcast about the overlooked and the misunderstood. A couple of years ago, I wrote a book called Outliers. It was about exceptional people, 
the ones who operate at the outer edges of human performance. Outliers fascinate me. And last year, I discovered an outlier in the form of a community organization, Washington State's City of Bellevue. The city wanted to improve public safety by making their roads safer. So they created something that no one had ever built before, a platform that gave road users warnings of any dangers ahead in real time. How did they build it? By using a combination of technologies, the cellular vehicle-to-everything network, T-Mobile's 5G network, and 5G-connected cameras. People driving, bicycling, walking, running, can't forget people running, and people operating the transportation network now had a way to prevent crashes. It's been a huge success. The city of Bellevue earned first place in the community category at the T-Mobile for Business Unconventional Awards, an event that celebrates T-Mobile customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of meaningful change. If you're a T-Mobile for Business customer and your team has, like the city of Bellevue, innovated something really, really cool, I encourage you to enter. It's also a great way for outliers to be recognized in front of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the Outlaw Country Music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Rick Rubin and John Fushante, who are talking about the making of the Chili Peppers 1991 album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So then we finished that album. Mm-hmm. I remember we had a really good party at that house. It was really fun. <laughs> it felt like a thousand people were there. Do you remember that? Yeah, that was a lot of fun. That was really good. Yeah, playing the music everywhere in the house and stuff and people playing ping pong and yeah. yeah. And then you went on the road and then how long was it before it stopped being fun? Well, uh we had a pretty big break between especially because we weren't really involved in the mixing. Uh-huh. Uh, so as I remember it from the time I left the recording studio, th- I think of it as being like a six month period or something that we weren't doing anything it was probably shorter than that. But I seem to remember having a nice long break, you know, and during that time, I, there's a couple of things that happened to me that I think like switched my 
mental gears around. Like one was a bad acid trip, like taking acid in the wrong environment and feeling at the time like I was never going to be the same and being stuck in that mindset and then waking up and feeling like, okay, I'm, I'm normal now. I'm not stuck like that. But as the weeks went on, starting to realize, God, I don't think I am the same <laughs> anymore. And also started, I won't get into too much into the drug thing, but they, they did seem like pivotal things that took place uh, yeah. that, that started occasionally using heroin uh, around the same time. And gradually, and you know, as I had already been smoking pot all day long, but it was having a very positive effect, you know, up till then. But uh, especially when that happened with the acid trip, it was just like, I think my brain definitely needed like a, a clearing, and I didn't yeah. allow myself for that. I was so attached to uh, the relationship between pot and my creativity that I couldn't stop doing that. And gradually, we went we went on tour, and gradually that synesthesia that I was talking about, yeah. it, it was gradually getting weaker and weaker. Like, mm. there was a distinct feeling of it drifting away, and it was fading, I would guess would be a good way to describe it. And with the limited experience I'd had in my life up till then, uh, uh, it seemed like if I didn't have that, I wasn't going to have creativity. Like, I thought that they were the same thing, and I thought, if I didn't have that, I'm going to go back to being how I was at Mother's Milk time or something. Or, mm -hmm. And the one time, the one activity that I could do that still was producing that phenomenon was drawing and painting. And I guess that had a lot to do with the fact that there was no purpose to it. I wasn't doing it for an audience. I wasn't doing it to be good. I wasn't doing it to impress anybody. I wasn't doing it to make money. Mm -hmm. So somehow that part of my creativity gradually was the thing that I was clutching to more and more. And music itself was starting to seem more and more meaningless. And I was having a lot of strange experiences where like, I couldn't find any CDs or records on the shelves that I wanted to hear. Everyone had some sort of bad connotation mm -hmm. to me. And those experiences were really scary. And so where music had felt like it, like it was my best friend, it was starting to feel like music itself was turning on me or something. It felt like mm -hmm. the, the voices in my head that had been guiding me towards what had been by far the most creative period of my life were starting to seem like angry at me or opposed to me in some way. We weren't, mm -hmm. we weren't, uh, we weren't working as a team anymore. And I felt like as the tour went on, uh, I couldn't explain any of this stuff to anybody. I don't think I even knew the word synesthesia. I don't, I just knew it felt like my creativity was disappearing. Yeah. And the painting and the drawing and the drugs as well were with my sense, if that if those feelings that I was having in me were what creativity was, those seemed like the way to, it seemed like the way to hold on to it was to take drugs as much as I wanted and to paint and draw as much as possible. And that was really, you know, you learn different ways of doing this kind of thing of staying connected to creativity in your life. But at that time, you know, I was 22 years old. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that you just followed whatever 
those feelings that you have inside you are, you just, you stay connected to whatever gives you that feeling. Like the Janis Joplin lyric about, you know, you've got it if it makes you feel good. That, that's, yeah. that's, I thought that that was uh, the path to follow. So it didn't occur to me to do anything like stop smoking pot or stop taking drugs or, you know, meditate. Not, you know, these things just were not, were not anything that me or anybody that I was close to was considering at the time. Yeah. Did you even meditate back then? Yeah, I learned when I was fourteen. Oh, right, of practice. course. Yeah, but I remember, I remember coming to see you when it was bad. Yeah, at your old house, and it was um, you didn't have many teeth then, if any, and the walls had blood all over them. There was a lot of vomit everywhere, and I think you may have still had one guitar, but maybe not even that. Yeah, and I remember you being resolute in what you were doing. There was a sense of it wasn't like you were trapped and you wanted to get out. It was just the opposite. It's like, no, this is, I am following my path and I'm following it to its end, wherever it takes me. And um, you definitely owned it. You know, you owned your choices and we're going, it was again, like, I respect you. You know, I, I'm, I wouldn't tell you to do anything different. It's like, if you say, this is what I want to do. It's like, I understand. I wouldn't want anyone telling me to, do something different than what I want to do, whatever it is, whatever it is, right or wrong or good or bad or wherever it goes. It's like, I support you in your journey. And if this is the journey that feels like the one that you want to be on, it's sad for me to see because it felt like you were going away. Yeah. Um, you, I think you weighed very little at that time too and were really weak. But you were still you and you were still smiley and like you, you were... <laughs> it wouldn't be so different than the conversation we're having now, you know? Right. Uh, other than it, it just seemed more harrowing from an outsider coming in that this was a, a, a scary situation. You yeah. Know, it's just so we have no context for this situation at any point in my life. Like, I don't know what to do other than I love you, I support you, whatever it is. I don't yeah. know what that is, you know? It's just scary. Yeah, no, I... I it was a funny thing about me during that period in comparison to the other people that I was friends with who went down a similar path with drugs was that they all felt guilty about it always. Yeah. Like yeah. they all denied, it took them a long time to even admit that they were an addict and it took them a long time to, uh, and, and they, would, they would always be talking about how they were going to quit. They were always yeah. talking about how this is the last time. And I never did any of that. Like, while I was doing it, I was really happy doing it. I was so happy to still be in touch with that spark of creativity inside myself. And I really felt that it was drifting away while I was playing with the band. And when I, as long as I had to do publicity and, you know, and touring and all these things, performing in front of people, it just felt like it was, there was no, it seemed to me there was no direction for it to go, but to, but to disappear completely and, I felt that in what I was doing, I was keeping it alive, and really, the hard time for me was when I was when I attempted to stop. Like, there was about a year there where I just didn't feel like myself anymore, and the feelings went completely away. Like once yeah. once I stopped taking drugs, there was yeah. nothing. My my head was blank. There was no there was no seeing music as colors or music as shapes or anything like that anymore. It was just 
Tell me the story of deciding to stop. You told me a story when I first saw you after that, and I want to see if it is still what it was then or close to what it was then. Yeah. The last time I saw you at your house, when things were scary for me to see, you were very positive on this journey that you were on. Right. And it was an unflinching move wherever it was going to go. Yeah. And then the next time I saw you was at Lachma at a Bunuel movie festival. And I didn't recognize you because you looked so radically different, but you were great and healthy. And I couldn't believe it. I was so happy. I was so happy to see you. I was so happy to see you alive. I was so happy to see you. And you were your, your, again, your happy self. So tell me about what happened in between for that to happen. Right. Okay. uh, Getting specific. I'm pretty sure that that time when I saw you at the Bunuel thing was during that first year that that I I had gotten over the addiction of heroin that I've never since then had to be medicated to get off heroin mm-hmm. but but it was about a year where most of the time I was clean but I also was had certain points during it where I had a, a speed binge or a crack binge or something like I was I had this idea that I could do things I really always wanted to be able to do things occasionally, you know, yeah. and so that was my first attempt to to do that and and it was a it was a hard period because that thing when you didn't recognize me like a lot of I, a lot of people had that with me at the time like uh my body's ability my body had forgotten how to process food, you know, yeah. like like uh and I didn't know anything really I was I was trying to eat what I thought was health food, but it wasn't really super helping. And, and I felt very uncomfortable in my body. And so I, I w- the, that first year was really a struggle because I, not only was I trying to exist in the world knowing I don't have those things that I was describing as feelings and vibes connected with music anymore, at least it wasn't in the pronounced way than it was when I had synesthesia, but Boy, did Joy Division mean everything to me back then? Did mm-hmm. like Nirvana, Bob Marley, Joy Division, th- those three things in particular, like I was so crazy about those particular things. Like I just, they meant so much to me. And I didn't have that specific colorful reaction to them that I was describing that, you know, from the blood sugar time, but. But I don't think music had ever meant so much to me because life seemed so bleak otherwise. People didn't really enjoy being around me. People felt sorry for me a lot. The same sense of humor that used to be funny when I was like the young, handsome, cool guy. Now, like the same the same jokes didn't work anymore. Like the same yeah. sense of humor wasn't working. I'm convinced that I was that when I was 20, 21, I could have been an actor. At that time, 27, I, I had the distinct feeling I could never be an actor again. After this experience of realizing like how much of myself was on the surface that was the reason that my personality was what it was, it was tr- very traumatic. And so that year was tough, and it ended with a few months of me making sure I avoided heroin addiction, but just doing whatever I wanted and going really off the deep end and having these crazy ex- experiences where there were hallucinations, but they were very real for me, where like people were in my house that weren't there and I spent hours talking to them and stuff. Yeah. 
Marcel Duchamp, Flea and Clara, like Perry Farrell, all kinds of people were there. And I thought they were there. I would call them afterwards talking about what we had done yesterday. Why did you leave? Because they would just disappear after a matter of hours of hanging out with each other. And then they would just disappear. And I, I would call them wondering, what happened? Where did you go? And it wasn't until I'd had that experience a bunch of times that I realized, wow, these things, I'm hanging out with people really late at night. And that was, that was the way to know for me, like if somebody's here and it's two in the morning, they're not actually here. So that was a, that was a pretty mind-blowing period of time because I remember trying to make four-track recordings at that time and finding that I was completely unable to follow a musical idea from, to its completion. Uh, but as far as experientially, what was happening during that period of time, as far as my experiences listening to music and uh, having feelings and I don't know if it was communication with people's astral bodies or hallucinations, I'm not sure what it was, but it was very real. And I remember getting, uh, there, there was a very loud voice in my head that said, you're going to be dead by your birthday. This is in December. And my birthday would have been four months later. And and the voice said, you're going to be dead by your birthday unless you get clean. And so I was pondering this, not sure, because throughout that year that I tried to be clean, the I wasn't, it didn't seem like anybody wanted to be my friend. It didn't seem like anybody wanted to really connect with me. It didn't seem like I knew how to interact with people. And so all of a sudden, that voice came saying that I was going to, that I was going to die in a few months. And all of a sudden, all these things started happening that forced me into a position of having to get clean. Uh, I had several thousand dollars, probably six, seven thousand dollars in cash in my closet and that I would carry around with me. And uh, I went downtown to buy some drugs and I came back and the well, no, the first thing that happened was the landlord came to my house, said he had to look inside my house. And I, I said, I can't let you in because there was needles and blood and different things. And it was a real mess. Even if it wasn't for the needles and blood, it was just messy and disgusting. And, and uh, I knew he wouldn't be happy. And so he said, well, if you don't let me in by tomorrow, I'm going to have to come here with the police. And I already had a warrant out for my arrest because I'd gotten picked up downtown uh, buying drugs, but they let me go. And I mean, they let, they let me out. There was a court date coming in the yeah. future. So that was the first thing I did was I got everything I needed out of that house and had, had a, an acquaintance drive me to a hotel. And then I had that six or $7,000 and came back from buying drugs and, and the money just was gone. I had no idea where it could have gone. I, my best bet was that somehow I lost it in the taxi, mm. but that was all the money I had. And then Bob Forrest, the friend of mine, put me on the phone with Bob Forrest and he said, I can get you in a clinic to, to get off drugs. You can do it however you want. You know, uh, I, I told him I'm not addicted to anything. I don't need, I don't need pills or anything. And uh, he said, if you don't want to take them, you don't have to take them. Like, you need to go in there just to reset your mind. And, and uh, I really had no choice. I mean, it would, yeah. would have been between that and just being a bum on the street, you yeah. know, like moving into a tent or something. Yeah. And so I did it. And 
and this for the first time I tried a few times to get off drugs, but this time I had a I had a feeling for the people who were there. I instead of arguing about the wisdom of being completely clean and admitting yourself an addict and that means you can't ever take anything. Instead of arguing with this stuff, I really tried my best to help the other people who I was in there with. And by some weird fluke, like DH, the original drummer I played in the band with, wound up in the same uh, hospital wow. with me at the same time. And yeah, so I, I just felt this empathy for the people that I'd like I thought, regardless of what happens with me, like I want to, I don't want to mess up anybody else's experience here because they're all, they've all been having a harmful effect on their loved ones and people around them. And like, I'm not going to say anything to, to argue with their attempt to better themselves, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, so I went through that, that 30 days and that was December of 1997. And 1998 turned out to be really productive year. The first few months, again, were really boring. I didn't feel good inside myself. And I feel like especially nowadays with the internet and stuff, people forget how valuable it can be to just be really bored, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> how valuable it can be to, to realize I'm not comfortable in my body, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, to realize I have no ability to communicate with people, you know, uh, to push yourself and to try to get better at, at, at listening to people and talking with people and having fun with people, all that stuff, like to actually have to make an effort for it not to be able to just be some automatic thing you can do by saying something you think is witty that you don't actually see the, the reaction to, you know? Yeah. And yeah, so I had several months that were really boring and then I think other people, you know, saw me as being at a really good place. And before I knew it, they asked me to be in the band again. And we started Incredible. writing Californication. Incredible. How many years was it between leaving the band and coming back that time? I think about four and a half years, yeah. maybe five years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, like, I didn't know what I was capable of anymore, but it didn't matter. I think something had turned around in my head where I realized that, making music wasn't about making music so you could generate these intense feelings within yourself. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I was almost looking at it before at the blood sugar time as if making music was a way of creating a sort of a painting in my head or something, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, throughout those, all those years, the music that I really felt strongly about, like those people I just mentioned and Jane's addiction and the germs and David Bowie, the things that really meant something to me from music, it felt as if those people were giving me their friendship. It felt, it felt like, the, like when I was alone, they were my friends. So I, I think I had it in my head that I suspected, and I wasn't sure, that making music can be a way of helping other people, a way of giving to other people, not taking yourself from the music that your own experience might be very bland but you might have something in your soul that you can by attempting to do something that you think is good that you can give to other people that can function much like a good doctor does where you're making people feel better mm -hmm. and those are the kind of ideas that were swimming around in my head at the time and i had a lot of ideas I had never regretted quitting the band during that five years, but towards the end of it, I started having these visions of 
what we could have done back yeah. in those days if if I had stayed with the band what what new musical territories could we have covered you know what 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 new ways could we have combined that melodic aspect with the funk aspect and things like this because on that blood sugar album it's it's kind of segregated it's like there's the mellow uh, melodic songs and there's there's the funky fun kind of songs and and there's a little bit of crossover here and there but mostly they're distinctly separate and so i started seeing how the the two things could have fused together in different ways and so when they asked me to be in the band immediately i started being excited about wow that maybe those that music i was hearing in my head that was you know that was something that i thought was just something that could have happened in the past that never can happen again maybe it can actually maybe i can actually do those things and and we did them and we were really ex excited about them so yeah. it and once that album was done and it did as well as it did and stuff and and it made people as happy as it did it just like it made me realize yeah it's true like it doesn't really matter if you have if you're blank in your head or if you have a ton of swirly you know colorful uh scenes going on in your head while you're making music that's not what it's about it's about really connecting with the people you're playing with, supporting the people you're playing with, you know, writing music that you feel is somehow connected to the music that you really love, that means something to you, and to have that mindset of wanting to share something with, with, with the people that you're making music with and with the people in the world who might eventually hear it, you know. Even as something as specific as going into the studio and playing a song together and getting a good take is a wildly exciting feeling. Yeah. You know, like when it comes together and you hear it really sound good, I find it thrilling because a lot, it doesn't always, you know, like sometimes you play and it's like, oh, that's, it's okay. But when it really does something beyond the regular, it's a very thrilling feeling being in the room and feeling it happen. Yeah. And there's something about, that thing that we were talking about earlier that that I feel like you kind of infused on us where you, your object going into it isn't to have a premonition that that's the feeling you're going to get. You go in with a kind of a humility and a kind of an innocence, not knowing how it's supposed to sound, not knowing what it's going to come back sounding like. And yeah, so when you go in with that mindset of just being ready for whatever to happen, and then you realize you're really happy with what's coming out of the speakers, it's true, it's really thrilling. It's yeah. a great feeling. It's different than I want it to be this way and it and and like check, I did it. It's different than that. It's when it when some when it feels like something bigger is happening than what we can control ourselves. Yeah. And I see it happen. I see it happen a lot in your band where something happens where the way everybody feels it and when everyone leans in the same way together, something big happens. Right. And it feels bigger than the individual parts. Not to take anything away from the individual parts. Yeah. But the combo does something and it's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. We're all really conscious of giving to each other and supporting each other. You know, we see the space between the parts as being the fundamental thing. I don't think anybody is over concerned with their own part. You know, like everybody's trying to find the right relationship between their part and the 
in the bass part there, or like for me, my part in the bass part, my part in the drum part, my part in the vocal part, like you're trying to find a relationship to the other things. You're not trying to do your part as if your part exists in one bubble and their part exists in another bubble. So it seems like that mindset is definitely contributes to the, to the effect that you're talking about. Yeah. That Californication record really like, like when I listen to all our records, it's my favorite one in terms of the, the band's connection to each other and, it seems like we were we were really all opening up this door that made us able to to do that that we hadn't seen was there and and like a lot of people think like that my playing was like less developed then or something that I got better as it went towards stadium and I get arcadium and I can see how people think that but cuz maybe technically I got better but I really wanted to play in the way that I was playing then like stylistically I felt like having a tone that was like clean to the point of being like weak sounding, I felt yeah. like it made Chad and Flea sound really good, you know? Yeah. And to play in a way that was simple and kind of feminine, like n not so much the macho, you know, guitar god guy, but to play in a way that that was, again, just as simple as possible and supportive of everything else, I felt like it made them sound really good, you know? and. I don't know, it's something I try not to lose connection with because I really do love just going off on the guitar and playing in a wild way, but but there's definitely something to be said for for the way I approached it on that record. I was really inspired. I went into it knowing, okay, I, I don't sound like Jimi Hendrix right now, you know, like I played guitar on and off for those four years, but I didn't have the same kind of muscular ability that I did then, so like I, my vibrato didn't sound like... Uh, I couldn't do that Jimi Hendrix kind of vibrato, but I practiced really hard and I got to the point where I think I could have done it, but I was, by the time we went in the studio, but I was, along the way, I developed this style that I thought was better that was rooted more in stuff like Joy Division and Bow Wow Wow and, and The Cure and stuff like this, where I felt the guitar playing is really television, where the guitar playing is really powerful, but it's not particularly muscular. And I felt that I'd hit on something as far as a new way of rounding out the band's chemistry, you know. In that album, you also started singing harmony in a big way. That, that's where it really, harmony came into the picture on that album as well. Exactly. Yeah, and that was 100% you, like, like because uh, I definitely was, was not open to the idea initially. Uh, <laughs> like, like, you really had to talk me into it. I can remember we were at the Village... And we were listening. I was playing you some Simon and Garfunkel stuff. Just to show, like, look how cool it is when the harmony crosses over. It's like it does some whole other, there's some whole other level of sophistication to the music when you have this other harmonic thing going on that we didn't have at that time. It's like maybe there's a place for it. And it could have not worked, but it worked. You know, it could have, who knows? We, yeah. I remember there were also many experiments we tried that it failed. You know, it's like you never know. But that was one time where, like, yeah, there was a day when I listened to it and I came back and feeling like, you know, harmonies are lame, you know, like, <laughs> like, and, and, but I continued listening to music at home every night when I went home. And then I started realizing that there were harmonies in all kinds of music that I love that I hadn't even noticed. You would think I'm a singer, I'm a musician, like, 
I w- listen for it. I would have noticed, but somehow we hear it as if it's in the lead vocal and we don't, our ear doesn't consciously, it's a backing vocal. So it, yeah. it's doing its job. It's, it's not the focal of attention and your attention just stays with the lead vocal and you don't realize that there's this harmony part that's really giving it depth. And the more music I listened to where I was listening for that because you'd been yeah. pushing me to do it, I started realizing, geez, all my favorite records have these great <laughs> harmonies on them, you know? So I started getting excited about it and uh, at least enough to, to try it. And um, I don't think it was till the record was done and Guy Picciotto from Fugazi told yeah. me that specifically he loved the harmonies on the record. Yeah. <laughs> that was when I realized like, oh, wow, okay, cool. We, really that, cool. That was good then, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It seemed just passable when I was doing it. It didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't 100% convinced, you know? It was really good. I remember it was really good. <laughs> and it just felt like, again, like another door was open, you know, just of what, another thing that could possibly happen. Yeah, it's true. I can't imagine all our records since then if <laughs> we hadn't it, right? done that. Yeah, I feel like maybe we should stop now and then we're going to do this again because I feel like it's going to take us a couple of hours to talk about each album, I think, based on how long we've been going. Right. Okay. You mean like sometime soon? You mean like a year from now? Whenever. Whenever right. you want. We'll do. We'll do a part three whenever you want. But I feel like there's enough for us to talk about where to go in depth where we need, we just need a lot of time. Okay, great. But this was a great, like, it's a great next chapter from where we were. Right. Okay. So let's, let's plan on doing that. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah, man. Sounds good. I love talking to you and I love, I feel like, again, I know you forever and I feel like I learn every time we talk about stuff blows my mind. <laughs> uh, thanks man it's re- you know you're the best person to do an interview with it's really pleasant <laughs> talking to you cool man thanks to John Fushante be sure to keep an eye out for the second half of this conversation with Rick Rubin coming soon you can hear all of our favorite Red Hot Chili Pepper songs on our playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez with engineering help from Nick Chafee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora. 
to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.